Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of Union General George Henry Thomas. In the last episode, I had stated this would be the final episode of the series, but I must, alas, uh, let you know that I've changed my mind. I decided to dedicate this episode entirely to the Battle of Nashville instead, and then close out the series in the next episode. I hope you'll forgive me and continue listening nevertheless. Okay, to pick up where we left off. It's December 1864, and John Bell Hood's Confederate Army of Tennessee was invading Tennessee and had made it to the outskirts of Nashville. If Hood could take Nashville back from federal forces, the rebels would make their way through Kentucky to Ohio as an invasion force, replenishing supplies and recruiting fresh troops as they went. However, in order to get to Nashville, he had nearly wrecked his army in fruitless assaults of Schofield's Union forces at Franklin, Tennessee. Union General George H. Thomas had been assigned the task of piecing together an army in Nashville to defend Tennessee and to stop Hood from venturing north to wreak havoc. His infantry and cavalry force was starting to coalesce, but this was taking time and Washington wasn't having it. The authorities in Washington, and by extension General-in-Chief U.S. Grant, had become frantic and were demanding that Thomas immediately attack Hood to stop his progress. Grant had become nonplussed at Thomas, and he issued an order relieving Thomas of command, but then rescinded the order before it could be wired to the field. When Thomas learned about this, he offered to resign, but this offer was not accepted. Also, as it turns out, Union General John Schofield had been scheming against Thomas behind his back. Schofield was now one of Thomas's corps commanders in Nashville, and he had been secretly wiring Washington that Thomas's preparations for the battle were unnecessary and that he, had be, he was being overcautious. On the base, basis of these secret communiques and Due to overall concern for the strategic situation in Tennessee, Halleck and Grant had now lost all patience with Thomas to attack Hood without further delay. Now, what would motivate Schofield to play the rogue and provocateur within Thomas's command? All evidence suggests that Thomas was universally loved by his men and officers in every command he had held so far, really without exception. Well, we, you may recall from the first episode in this series that Schofield had been expelled from West Point, but only temporarily, and this was upon Thomas's recommendation while he was an instructor at the academy. Now, Schofield's behavior was indeed deserving of expulsion. However, his family's political ties had won him redemption, and he was reinstated. It is believed for this reason, Schofield would, would harbor a grudge to go out of his way to undermine Thomas in Nashville. And Schofield was a shrewd political operator, which Thomas was definitely not. In addition, Thomas and Grant were not on the best of terms. There was a coolness between them, which was evident in Chattanooga. This could have been due to an incident just before Shiloh 
when Thomas was, or just after Shiloh, when Thomas was placed in temporary command of Grant's forces. Grant was not close to Thomas like he was to Sherman and Sheridan, and he was not likely to give Thomas much rope, especially when all of Washington was in an uproar over the dangerous intent uh, of, of Hood for the Ohio River region. Now, Thomas had designed an attack plan that, when carried out, could overwhelm Hood's rebel army. But to execute this complex plan, he needed a big cavalry, and the men needed mounts. General James Wilson was the Union cavalry commander. His troops had plenty of fighting experience against Nathan Bedford Forrest rebel troopers, but unfortunately for them, most of their encounters had had resulted in humiliating losses. Thomas was doggedly determined this would not happen again. He, to get his cavalry ready, they had to secure lots of mounts. And to do this, the troopers were scouring the countrysides of Tennessee and Kentucky. No effort was spared to get these mounts. They even took horses from a traveling circus and from Andrew Johnson's farm in Tennessee. Then, just when Thomas was ready to attack Hood, the rain came, and the cold December rain in Tennessee turned to ice. The roads became impassable, and there was no way to launch an attack. But Washington was not impressed. Grant wired Thomas, quote, If you delay the attack longer, the mortifying spectacle will be witnessed of a rebel army moving for the Ohio River, and you will be forced to act. A- a- accepting such weather as you find it. Let there be no further delay, for weather or for reinforcements, unquote. But there was nothing Thomas could do until the ice abated. Ne- nevertheless, Washington was unrelenting. Grant now sent Union General jo- John Logan from City Point, Virginia, to relieve Thomas of his command. This superseded Grant's earlier order to have Schofield take command instead. Perhaps Grant could see through Schofield's intentions. Well, Logan left on the night of December 13th to Nashville by way of Washington to take command of Thomas's Union forces. From Benson Bubrick's book, Master of War, I'm uh, paraphrasing the following. At length, on December 14th, a warm rain cleared away the ice. Thomas's spirits visibly rose, and he made ready for the attack. General Logan, by this time, was just outside Cincinnati. Grant had gone to Washington and was to start for Nashville the next day. The attack was set for dawn. In his memoirs, Grant said he decided not to proceed when he saw the wire from Thomas announcing his readiness at last to move. On December 15th, Grant Grant had indeed drawn up another order to have Thomas relieved, and had given it to Major Thomas Eckert for transmission to Nashville. But, but Eckert held on to the telegram for an hour to allow for some new word from the front. That was just long enough. Suddenly, the telegraph office was overwhelmed by a flood of military dispatches from Tennessee. Something important had obviously happened. Now, the day before, on December 14th, Thomas had called his corps commanders together once more 
to carefully explain the plan of attack. In Napoleonic style, his army would execute, quote, a gigantic left wheel with its heavy right wing swinging forward on a pivot formed by its left, which would make the first demonstrations and lead Hood to believe his right was being assailed by the main force, unquote. On the left, he placed Steedman's corps of black and white troops. Schofield was in the center to serve as the general reserve. Wood and Smith were on the right, and on the extreme right was J- James Wilson's cavalry, 12,000 men on their new mounts. They were to fight dismounted until the time came for pursuit. This army was pieced together uh, by Thomas. They even used civilians to occupy the works and the interior lines. Thomas's total force was around 55,000 men, including infantry and cavalry. They were facing south from Nashville. Hood's numbers were not as clear because he didn't keep good records after his losses at Franklin. However, it is believed he had between twenty-five and 30,000 effective troops, well fortified just south of Nashville facing, facing north. Hood's men had high morale. However, they were po- uh, poorly provisioned, cold, and many of them didn't have shoes and proper clothing for the winter. So at dawn on December 15th, a dense fog enveloped both camps. This helped hide the Union formations as they made their way forward to attack. Federal artillery was already bombarding the Rebel line, which was now about five miles long. Thomas made sure everything was set, then advanced his entire line to within 600 yards of the enemy at all points. Shortly after eight, the sun burned through the fog, and he turned to his chief of staff with orders for Steedman to attack the Confederate right. Up rose his men with black troops in the forefront, and they moved with such force that Hood did believe this was the main attack. The main attack, however, was occurring on Hood's left. Wilson's dismounted cavalry division had advanced and took rebel artillery positions in their left and rear. Smith's division struck the rebels on the left, drove them back, took their guns, and turned them on the fleeing rebels. Then Thomas swung Schofield's reserve corps around further to the Confederate left, forcing Hood to extend an already thin lines to defend his position. All this time, Steedman's troops on the rebel right were also making progress. The rebel corps of Ben Cheatham and Stephen D. Lee were immobilized dealing with this threat so they couldn't support the left. Hood failed to adjust to the changing situation, and Smith overran the Confederates who were behind a stone wall. Things were already getting bad for the rebels just when the greatest cavalry movement of the entire war was about to begin. Under Union General Wilson, 12,000 mounted Union men made a wide detour around the rebel left, dismounted and advanced, armed with seven-shot Spencer repeating carbines. They cut their way across the main road and into the Confederate rear. This caused the Confederate left to collapse on itself, which could 
have become a rout if not for the steadying, steadying influence of Stephen D. Lee and his corps in the Confederate center. Thomas's plan was right on schedule. The only exception was that he had not quite succeeded in hooking all the way around Hood and clamping him in a vice. He had managed to pry the rebels from their strong fortifications and shove them west and left back two miles to the south. Rebel Corps commanders Lee, Charles, and Stewart were all forced to fall back to a new defensive line at the end of the day on the 15th. This new line was much more compact and easier to manage than the previous one. Thomas sent the following uh, telegram to Halleck in Washington at 9 p.m. on December 15th. I attacked the enemy's left this morning and drove it from the river, below the city, very nearly to the Franklin Pike, a distance of eight miles. Have captured General Chalmers' headquarters and train, and second train of about 20 wagons, with between 800 and 1,000 prisoners and 16 pieces of artillery. The troops behaved splendidly, all taking their share in assaulting and carrying the enemy's breastworks. I shall attack the enemy again tomorrow, if he stands to fight, and if he retreats during the night, will pursue him, throwing the heavy cavalry force in his rear to destroy his trains if possible. This good news at last from Nashville aroused fierce rejoicing in the capital. Congratulatory telegrams came in like by the dozens, along with admonitions to keep the pressure on. During the night, Hood had drawn his rebel army up into a shallow U in Brentwood Hills, about two miles south of his previous position. He rearranged his corps, completely facing Lee on the right and Cheatham on the far left. This was a mistake. On the 16th, Thomas's initial assault was just like the day before. It fell on Hood's right in hopes of causing the Confederate commander to draw his troops off the left to reinforce the right. It was there that the U.S. colored troops, part of Steedman's corps on the Union left, gained their measure of glory. But it did come at a terrific cost. They attacked ferociously with huge losses, but indeed they drew the rebels' attention and troops away from Thomas's primary objective, which was Hood's left and rear. I'm paraphrasing now from uh, Winston Groom's Shrouds of Glory. Again, Wilson's Union cavalry was launched at the rebel left, this time against Cheatham. Their progress was slow due to slippery mud and dense woods. Wilson asked Thomas for a change of direction, but Thomas told him to stay the course. About noon, more than 4,000 of Wilson's dismounted men with their fast-repeating rifles finally managed to get around Cheatham's flank and began moving in behind him. About this time, some of Wilson's troopers captured a courier Hood had sent to Chalmers with the following desperate message, quote, For God's sake, drive the Yankee cavalry from our left and rear or all is lost, unquote. Cheatham's situation on the far left of the Confederate line at Shies Hill had already become tenuous. This is because Hood had been tricked by Thomas's diversion on the right and had moved vital troops away from the left to reinforce Lee. 
and Shy Hill's defensive works had been poorly laid out by the Confederates. Just like at Missionary Ridge in Chattanooga, Hood's engineers had placed the defensive works on the physical crest of Shy's Hill instead of the military crest. This meant the Union troops could scale the hill and make it to within 30 yards of the rebel position without being seen. This was a recipe for disaster. At this point, Wilson forwarded Hood's captured message to Thomas and then sent three couriers to Schofield asking for his support for an all-out general attack on the rebel left. Schofield was not interested. In fact, he was very nervous and worried that Hood was about to attack him instead. Unable to get Schofield to move, Wilson rode to Thomas's headquarters, where he found Thomas and Schofield together. It was four in the afternoon, and by the smoky light, they could see the entire Confederate left flank, marked by flashes of cannon fire and rifle fire, spread across the hills to the east, and also Wilson's own dismounted men, who were in plain sight moving against the left and rear of the enemy's line, pouring over their works. Wilson, incensed by Schofield's delay, appealed to Thomas. Thomas, according to Wilson, quote, lifted his field glasses and coolly scanned what I clearly showed him. It was a stirring sight, and, gazing at it, he turned to Schofield and, as calmly as if on parade, directed him to move to the attack with his entire corps, unquote. A blast of artillery fire opened up along, all along the line. Then the whole line advanced and swept everything before it. The turning movement of Wilson's cavalry, which enveloped and took in the reverse the rebel line for a mile and a half, made it impossible for Hood to resist the infantry assault. The whole Confederate left was crushed in like an eggshell. Once the arc of the Confederate line was broken, there were no reserves to restore it, and from right to left the Confederate troops peeled away from the works in wild dismay. Quote, for the first and only time, a Confederate army abandoned the field in confusion, unquote, wrote Hood himself after the war. This was not true, but it made for good reading. Roars of excitement went up from the Federal ranks. On the Union left, Steedman's black troops swept up the slopes of Overton's Hill, on which they had left so many of their comrades earlier this day. This time they reached the summit and chased the Confederates down the other side. Between 3 p.m. and 4 p.m., Hood's entire army was effectively annihilated. Confederate Private Sam Watkins was on Shy's Hill and had the following to say, quote, The army was somewhat like a flock of geese that had lost their leader. I have never seen an army so confused and demoralized. I remember when passing by Hood, how feeble and decrepit he looked, with an arm in a sling and a crutch in the other hand, and trying to guide and control his horse. Unquote. Thomas was not done yet. The cavalry he had carefully assembled in spite of all the harassment from Washington now had its crowning task. 
Now mounted, they sped after the fragments of Hood's army in relentless pursuit. As Wilson was directing his men down the turnpike, Thomas appeared in the darkness. Quote, Is that you, Wilson? he cried. Dang it to hell, Wilson. Didn't I tell you we could lick him? Didn't I tell you? Unquote. Then he wheeled about and said the following, quote, Follow them as far as you can tonight and resume the pursuit as early as you can tomorrow morning. Unquote. Then he disappeared into the night. That night, Secretary of War Stanton wired Thomas, quote, I rejoice in tendering to you and the gallant officers and soldiers of your command the thanks of this department for the brilliant achievement of this day, unquote. From Grant, quote, I congratulate you and your army, unquote. From Lincoln the next day, quote, Please accept for yourself, officers and men, the nation's thanks for the good work of yesterday. You made a magnificent beginning and grand consummation is within your easy reach. Do not let it slip, unquote. In Washington and City Point, Thomas and his army received a 100-gun salute. By the end of the day, Hood's army was no more. The Federals claimed 13,000 prisoners in Nashville alone, along with thousands more stragglers as they pursued Hood's rebels out of Tennessee and beyond. Wilson's Union cavalry continued hot on the heels of what was left of Hood's army, which was mostly remnants of Stephen D. Lee's corps being supported by Forrest's cavalry. Forrest had been off in Murfreesboro during the battle and played almost no role in the fighting. But he did play a big role as Hood's rear guard afterwards. Stephen D. Lee did what he could in rear guard support until he himself was wounded at Spring Hill by troopers from Wilson's cavalry. All told, Hood set out from Atlanta to Tennessee in pursuit of Thomas's army with an estimated 50 to 55,000 men and officers. However, after the Battle of Nashville, only about 8,000 men made it back to Confederate lines. And of those, only about 4,500 would be left to accompany Joseph E. Johnston to fight in North Carolina. By comparison, Thomas pieced together a total force of 55,000 for the Nashville campaign, and of those, only 3,000 were casualties by the end. Preparation and planning had given Thomas and the Union Army the most decisive victory of the war. Historian John Fisk wrote the following, Not only was it the most decisive, but the most economical. A complete vindication of Thomas's insistence that an army rightly led and prepared can win a tremendous victory without shredding its own ranks. In the end, Nashville would be judged uh, as one of the two most perfect battles ever fought, the other being Napoleon's victory at Austerlitz. So this begs the question, if Nashville was such a perfect battle, why is it not studied or talked about with the same interest as Gettysburg, Shiloh, or Vicksburg, etc.? We'll discuss this in the next episode, and we will finally close out our study of this great general and great man. 
So tune in to episode 22, in which we will conclude our discussion of General George H. Thomas.